you're listening to a sermon from Iron City Church. We encourage you to use this podcast only as a supplement to your regular attendance or membership of a local church that faithfully preaches the gospel. If you're in Birmingham, we would love for you to visit Iron City. See more details at our website, ironcitychurch.org. Have you ever been overwhelmed by a mess in front of you? Have you ever been overwhelmed by a mess in front of you? Uh, Maybe it's the messiness of a room in your house. Maybe it's a messy relationship, a messy inbox, or maybe it's a mess internally, the scramble of thoughts in your mind, anxieties in your heart. I recently read Psalm 94, and the psalmist wrote, when the cares of my heart are many, have you ever been overwhelmed by the mess of life? The mountain of mess at work? The mountain of mess at church? With the summer winding down, this will be our last overview sermon for the year. Uh, Next week, I plan to start a short series on the vision and mission of our church. So if you're new, it'll be a great time to hop in. And if you're not new, it'll be a good time to remember the work the Lord has given us as a church to do and how this work has not changed. Uh, But for tonight, we're considering the mess. I mentioned mess at church, and tonight's text is a letter written to a messy church, a church with a lot of problems. Uh, Problems like cliques in the church, lawsuits between church members, sexual scandal among church members. Members are getting drunk at church. And it's here that I'll ask you a question right up front. What should you do when church gets messy? How should you think about it? About your fellow church members, what should a messy church do? Turn to the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians, it's on page 895 of those Black Pew Bibles, page 895. We'll be looking at the whole book tonight, so you'll be helped to open that Bible. And if you don't own a Bible that you can read for yourself, please feel free to take that black one as a gift from us to you. 1 Corinthians is a letter written for a church that doesn't have it all together. And lest I be unclear, that means it's a letter written for a church like ours. The letter was written around A.D. 54 by the Apostle Paul. You can see his introduction right there in verse 1. Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. An apostle was a special authoritative representative of Jesus. And Paul is writing verse 2 to the church of God that is in Corinth. Both ancient and modern-day Corinth are in south-central Greece, but what matters is not so much where the Corinthians are, but who they are. Look with me back at verse 2. Paul says he writes to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be. Isn't that interesting? The Corinthians are called to be something. Beloved, tonight we're talking about identity, purpose, calling. Paul is reminding the Corinthians of who they are and who they aren't. 
of who they are and whose they are. He's writing to remind them of what they should be, called to be saints, he says. Did you know that in the Bible, saints does not refer to a special person who has been formally canonized by the church. No, it's a term for every Christian, Christians like you. And so Paul writes, verse 2, to those called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Right off the bat, sisters and brothers, in his letter, Paul is talking about Jesus. What would Jesus say to a messy church? What should a messy church do? Answer number one. Believe that God is faithful. What should a messy church do? Answer number one of five. Believe that God is faithful. Beloved, what would Paul say to this collection of saints falling so short of their calling? Oh, what does Paul say first to this messy church? Look with me at chapter 1, verse 4. I give thanks to my God always for you. Beloved, we'd expect Paul's opening words to be angry scolding. We'd expect his finger to be wagging, but he begins not with punishment, but with praise, with gratitude. I give thanks to my God always for you, verse 4, because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful. God is faithful. God is faithful by whom you were, watch this, called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Beloved, right off the bat, Paul reminds the church not just of who they are, but of who their God is. Do you see? Paul doesn't just march into the mess, handing out report cards and writing out solutions for all these problems. No, amid all the faithlessness of the people, he starts by pointing out to the one faithful God. But sisters and brothers, as we encounter our mess in life, isn't it so easy to forget God? to look at the mountains of mess as opposed to the one who can move mountains. And so Paul puts our eyes where they need to be on God, who is our hope of making it to the end. The hope is not that y'all will just try harder and do better, but that God will sustain, that God's presence will remain, that God is faithful. Church family, do you believe God is working amid the mess, that he is in the mess, and that that's enough. 
The psalmist writes, even in the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for thou art with me. Sisters and brothers, do you believe God is in the mess of this church? That he loves this church despite its mess. Hear me, God does not delight in sin, but as we heard in Micah, he delights in loving sinners. He is not turned off or scared of our mess. No, our mess inclines him that much more to be faithful and compassionate toward us. Do you believe that? If I can confess, there are days I don't. But praise God that our hope is not that Isaac is faithful, but that God is faithful. Y'all heard about our upcoming United We Pray event. Uh, last year for our event, uh, you'll remember we had Dr. Jarvis Williams in town, a friend of mine. Uh, and I remember sharing with Jarvis, honestly, some things I was discouraged by pastorally, uh, some mess in the church. And you know what he said to me? He didn't say, well, here's how to solve that. Do A and B and then you'll get C. That's what I wanted to hear. I wanted the professor to give me the formula, but before he is a professor, Jarvis is a Christian, a pastor. And so he just put his hand on my, sh on my shoulder and simply said, hey man, the Lord is faithful. It's as easy to say as it is hard to believe. The Lord is faithful. Praise God. He does not give up on us. Well, what shocks me about Corinthians is that it could have been a really short letter. Could have read, Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. Dear Corinthians, please close the building. Turn in your keys. This church is done. But no. God doesn't bail on his church when things start getting messy. He sticks with us. There is hope for a better future still. And Paul anchors this hope not in us, but in our God, whose faithful, steadfast love for us is not based on our spiritual progress. Did you notice this? Paul doesn't say, Corinthians, do such and such, get your act together, and then God will be faithful. No, there aren't 16 chapters of ethical instruction before this simple sentence. Rather, right off the bat, before he speaks of our duty, Paul speaks of our God's character. God is faithful. His love for his people is as he is, firm, fixed, secure. Beloved, my love for Avit, Teddy, Mabel, and baby Adam's number four, my kiddos, is fixed. It's not based on how well they do, which gives me the freedom as their father when I see them acting a fool to say, hey, let's work on this. We got to work on that. And they hear this not from a place in which, they in which they need to earn my affection, but from a place, a heart, in which they already have it. Friends, in a book that can sound so shrill and stinging, this is the first note, the anchor that holds the rest of the book. God is faithful. We work 
from that steadfast love, not for it. And we have work to do because, again, God is faithful, which means because He loves us even as we are, He will not let us stay as we are. As a faithful father, he speaks into our mess so that we might walk and talk and be like our father, so that we might imitate him. God speaks into our mess. Now, what is this mess specifically? Hmm? What mess does Paul address? Well, he addresses a lot and says, God is faithful. Therefore, y'all should do this. What should a messy church do? Be humble and stay united. What should a messy church do? Point number two, be humble and stay united. In chapters one to four, the mess Paul addresses is pride and separation. Pride and separation. That is pride and divisions in the church. Look with me at chapter one, verse 10. He says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Let's remember what Pastor Cam said last week, that the most repeated call to God's people under the new covenant is unity. But Paul is writing to the Corinthians because, verse 11, it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there's quarreling among you. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Beloved, Paul is writing the Corinthians because he's heard of disunity in the church. And the fact that he heard about this should remind us that what happens among us as a church does not simply stay among us. Churches have reputations that travel. The news about them spreads for good or for ill. And the report, the headline of the Corinthian church was strife and division. And this was a big deal because the church is supposed to reflect what God is like. The church is supposed to reflect what God is is like. That's why Paul asks in verse 13, is Christ divided? Is his heart one of separation and strife and alienation or one of reconciliation? The Corinthians were telling people it was the former. You see, the Corinthians were taking pride in following different preachers of the day, be it Paul or Peter or Apollos. In Greece, wisdom was a big deal. And people loved claiming, well, I follow this school of wisdom. Oh, yeah, well, I follow that school of wisdom. And Paul goes on to say that the wisdom of man did not save y'all. Jesus did. That's why in verse, that's why verse 23, we preach Christ crucified, he says. Christ crucified. Oh, Lord, may Iron City Church never graduate from the message of Christ crucified. But the people of Corinth had their caps and gowns ready because they were ready to walk away from this gospel, seeing as the Corinthians cared more about the preacher than the gospel he preached. And this should remind us that when we start to root our confidence in people, 
When we give them more credit than they deserve, like, oh, the reason I believe is because that guy is such a good preacher and he says all these wise things about all these complicated things and yeah, I'm with him. When we root our confidence in the wrong thing, we naturally start to boast in the wrong thing. And that always leads to a proud spirit, to wrongly trying to distinguish ourselves from and above others. One of you says, oh, I listen to nine marks. Another of you says, I listen to Beth Moore. Oh, yeah, well, I listen to Pentecostal ghosty guys when the only boast we should have is that Jesus saved us. Beloved, pride, favoritism, factionalism are not fruits of the Spirit. That stuff is the mind of man. The Spirit, however, chapter 2 says, gives us a spiritual mind that we might understand the things of God. The Spirit gives us the mind of Christ, a new way of seeing and understanding things, a way that is spiritual, supernatural. That's why when Paul mentions these divisions in chapter 3, verse 4, he says, for when one says, I follow Paul and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? Beloved, God wants to do something beyond human, beyond flesh among us. You can go to the world for division, partisanship, and grandstanding, but the church ought to be different. You ought to be different. Paul will tell us how to be different in a second, but very practically, as you go from this place, and as you look at life and others, ask yourself this week, am I thinking with the mind of Christ or the mind of the flesh? Am I looking at this situation through the eyes of heaven or the eyes of man? And how you know which set of eyes you're looking with is that the eyes of man will produce pride, frustration, and division, and the eyes of heaven will produce unity and humility and peace. Things the Corinthian church did not have because they were regarding their preachers with the mind of man. What would it look like, though, for them to have the mind of Christ in this? In chapters 3 and 4, Paul says it would look like regarding their preachers properly. Beloved, regard your preachers properly. We preachers are nothing. Chapter 3, verse 7 says, Who is Ray Ortland? Who is Charlie Dates? Who is Cam Pugh, Isaac Adams, Dustin Ratcliffe? But servants through whom you have believed. We are servants, chapter 4, verse 1 says. It's so interesting. People, naturally, with the mind of man, we worry that people think too little of us. Paul, with the mind of Christ, was worried that people thought too highly of him. Your ministers, beloved, are servants, and you are not ultimately the judge of us. God is. Friends, hear him. Paul is not saying you can't have a preacher you appreciate or respect. In chapter 16, he says it's good to recognize and honor such a person, but please remember, your preacher is just a person. And your boast is to be in God. 
Sisters and hum- brothers, be humble and stay united. And to do that, you have to regard your preachers properly. What should a messy church do? Point number three, be humble and be holy. What should a messy church do? Point number three, be humble and be holy. In chapters five through seven, the mess Paul addresses is pride and scandal in the church. Look at chapter five, verse one. Chapter five, verse one. Paul writes, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. And of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant? Ought you not rather to mourn? So Paul writes saying, hey, news is traveling that y'all, the people of God, are doing things sexually that even the world finds repulsive, and you're proud about this. So in our last point, People were taking pride in preachers. Now they're taking pride in permission. That is, in the permission or the license they give folks. The Corinthians were boasting in their tolerance as a church. You can imagine a Corinthian church member saying, oh, yeah, that's John. You know, we all know he's committing incest, but we love him and All the other churches judge him, but we're tolerant and loving and accepting here. And Paul is having none of that false piety. He says clearly in chapter 5, verse 6, your boasting is not good. Friends, God's people should not celebrate sin. It's been said that sin once committed seeks to be tolerated. And sin once tolerated seeks to be accepted. And sin once accepted seeks to be celebrated. But God's people should not celebrate sin. We got to know this, beloved, because tolerance is one of the biggest idols in America. The mind of man, the mind of the world... It says, tolerance is loving. The mind of Christ says in 1 Corinthians 13 that love does not rejoice at wrongdoing. So let me ask you, is there wrongdoing you delight in? Even in your own mind and heart, is there wrongdoing you're tolerating in yourself or others? Beloved, confess that to someone. Mourn that. We should not take pride in sin or our tolerance of it. What should we do? Again, Paul doesn't leave us without solutions. And our last point, if we're taking pride in preachers, Paul says regard them properly. In this point, if we're taking pride in very flagrant sin, Paul says we ought to confront it corporately. Look at the end of chapter 5, verse 2. He says, let him who has done this be removed from among you. So, beloved, Paul is talking about what Cam talked about last week, church discipline. He goes on to spell this out, and you can see more about this in Matthew 18, but we ought to do this as a church. And I'm going to be frank, this is an area our church needs to grow in. And it is the work of our whole church. 
So this is not just the responsibility of the elders, but the whole congregation. We ought to practice church discipline out of love for, the, for people who bear the name of Christ but are misrepresenting him to the world. Yes, I know, we all misrepresent God at times. We all sin, but there are some misrepresentations which, when not repented of, call into question someone's profession of faith. Like, it's not at all clear how you can keep on doing that and be a Christian. And so Paul tells us to confront this together as a church. And we do this with the hope that God can change that person and lead them to repentance. After all, didn't he do that with you? Chapter 6, verse 9 Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but... You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Beloved, if there's hope for you to repent, there's hope for others. So let's be honest as a church and not give any member false assurance that they are going to inherit the kingdom of God when we know they are, they are unrepentantly living in a way that flat out contradicts that kingdom. And let's pray our socks off that that person repents. That can really happen. In 2 Corinthians, we see the church disciplines this guy, and this guy repents and is restored to the church. Beloved, this is why we have church membership. We don't have it so we can know who to send the manifold to. We don't have it so we can be in a cool, exclusive club. No, we have it because Paul says it's those inside the church we are to judge. To hold accountable, chapter 5, verse 12 says. So, when you join the church, what you're saying is, hey, I'm a Christian, I want to be held accountable, I want help making it to heaven, and I want to help others make it to heaven and hold them accountable too. All right, Paul goes on in chapter 6 to remind us not just of who we are, but whose we are. We are not our own, but we were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body, Paul says especially as regards sexual temptation, which we ought to flee. Paul gives specific instructions about singleness and marriage in chapter 7, in which he makes clear that being married is great, but it's not the greatest thing in life. In fact, being single, Paul says, is the superior state to be in. Again, this won't make sense unless we hear it with the ears and mind of Christ. But in all this, beloved, what Paul is getting at, whether you are single or married, is your holiness. Your calling, your keeping the commands of God by the power of the Spirit of God. Beloved, this is a book about holiness. So be humble and be holy. And to do that, we have to confront sin corporately. And yet there's still one more way Paul calls the Corinthians to be holy, to be different than the world. What should a messy church do? Point number four, be humble and stop insisting on your own way. What should a messy church do? Point number four, be humble 
and stop insisting on your own way. To say it positively, put others before yourselves. But what Paul says to do is live considerately. That is consider other, others, specifically their conscience and their focus on the Lord, and do all this for the sake of the gospel. Beloved, Paul says this because in chapters 8 through 14, in a number of different scenarios, he addresses pride that puts self at the center of everything. Now, the mess he addresses is pride and self-centeredness. And we've seen how the Corinthians were taking a wrong kind of pride in their preachers, a wrong kind of pride in their permissions, and Paul goes on to admonish them for taking the wrong kind of pride in their privileges, their individual rights and liberties. Look at chapter 8, verse 1. Chapter 8, verse 1. Now, concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. All right, I know this paragraph can sound strange. The scenario Paul addresses here is whether Christians should abstain from eating foods that in this time would have been traditionally offered up to idols in pagan worship. Again, that might not necessarily be our context, though honestly, I've seen plenty of occultic stuff in Southside and, and Homewood, so this is an ancient history. But nonetheless, don't worry too much about the occasion here, but the principle, and the principle is the conscience. And how some Christians were tempting other Christians to violate their conscience, to do something they understood to be wrong. You see, some Christians in this time period thought it was wrong to eat certain kinds of meat, just as some Christians today, especially here in the South, think it's wrong to drink certain types of drinks, like alcohol. And yet, there were other Christians in this period who knew it was fine to eat meat offered up to idols, that it wasn't actually a sin, but Paul says this knowledge was making them wrongly proud. It was puffing them up. You see, because in pride, these Christians were going ahead and eating meats in front of the other Christians who understood that to be wrong. Uh, these Christians were boasting then in their liberties. I can eat that. You can eat that. And Paul says, hey, even if you have the right to eat that, you shouldn't eat that in front of your brother or sister because you are tempting your brother, your sister, a person Jesus died for, to do something they think is wrong. But beloved, have you ever been around someone who is doing something you think is wrong? Is that a fun position to be in? Does it not tempt you to either do that thing yourself or to resent that person who is doing whatever it is you think to be wrong? Friends, does your conscience not ache in those scenarios? Paul is saying, don't put people in that position. Don't make someone else's conscience ache. Give up your liberty. Even if it's not wrong for you to do that particular thing, it's wrong for you to do it in front of someone who thinks it's wrong. Are you tracking with me? Paul is saying, consider that other person and their conscience and their soul more important than your individual liberties. And this all starts to get very practical, beloved. 
Because after all, didn't the COVID-19 pandemic become one of the most divisive issues in churches because so many Christians were more concerned with their rights over and against the consciences of their fellow church members? I mean, Americans, we need to hear this word because we are in a country and culture that worships the individual, that champions individual rights and liberties. Last week, Cam gave us fantastic teaching on how in the new covenant, we are no longer as connected to others as we once were. And I agree with every word he said, as we consider that truth, let us be careful to not think we are now completely disconnected from one another and that what we do has no bearing upon someone else. Paul's saying, daggone it, yes it does. Paul's saying, you gotta look out for one another. And I think he would look at some church, some of the churches of our land and say, y'all are acting more American than Christian. Stop putting yourself at the center. Stop putting yourself in what you want to do first. The proper order of priorities is Jesus, others, you. That's how you can have joy. There's a nice acronym. Jesus, others, you. And so, friends, in all this, Paul is saying, be humble. Live considerately. In chapter 10, verse 24, he puts it like this. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Iron City Church, wouldn't it be wonderful if our church was known as the church where people laid down their rights for the sake of others? If someone shared today in the membership class that's th- that that's what drew them to this church, was seeing y'all lay down your own rights during COVID. Let's keep being like that, beloved, which is to say, let's keep being like Jesus. I mean, Jesus had every right in the universe, and what did he do? He laid them down. Eat whatever is sold in the, mar- in the meat market. Paul says in chapter 10, verse 25, without raising any question on the ground of conscience, for the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in, in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Sounds like one of our church pillars, doesn't it? Beloved, I know COVID is arguably behind us, so let me give one practical way this all might translate to our context and how we might have the mind of Christ in all this. You might want to think twice before you post on Instagram about that TV show you love. It might not be a sin for you to watch it. You might have the liberty. But what if another brother or sister in this church watches that show and is tempted to sin? What if another brother or sister goes to that concert you posted about or reads that book you posted about and is tempted to sin? Family, the truth is we don't need friends to help us sin. We're good at sinning on our own. We need friends, church members, to encourage us to do what's right. 
Beloved, this is what we ought to do. Put no stumbling block in anyone's way so they can hear the gospel, focus on the gospel, and believe the gospel and be saved. We've seen one scenario in which Paul addresses this issue of pride and self-centeredness. He also addresses this in chapter 11 with the way people were abusing the Lord's Supper. And he also speaks to this self-centeredness in chapters 12 through 14 as he talks about spiritual gifts. And because some of you are some of you, uh, you will hear me talk about spiritual gifts and say, okay, spiritual gifts in Corinthians, finally, let's talk about the good stuff. And I hate to disappoint because Paul's main, Paul's main point in that conversation is in that cha- chapter sandwiched between chapters 12 and 14, chapter 13, in which he says that if you don't use your gifts in love, for the building up of the church, you're nothing. You're missing the point of the gifts. And whenever I preach through 1 Corinthians, we can have a much longer conversation about these gifts as we walk through those chapters more slowly. But the point for now is that love for others in the church is what matters above all else. Love. Love. Love is the very thing that is so hard to keep in our minds and hearts as we work through our mess as a church, isn't it? And so we have to appreciate God who is love teaching us what it is to love. What is love? The first Corinthians 13, four says, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. Beloved, what is the perfect Paul is talking about? Better question is, who is the perfect Paul is talking about? The answer is Jesus, which leads to God's last exhortation for us. Here it is. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. What should a messy church do? Point number five, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. Friends, 1 Corinthians was actually not Paul's first letter he wrote to the Corinthians. Uh, From what we can tell, he wrote four letters to the Corinthians. We only have two of them, and I share this because Paul was clearly in regular communication with the Corinthians, and the Corinthians clearly had a lot of questions number of which we've mentioned, questions about food offered to idols, about marriage, about spiritual gifts. And the Corinthians also had questions about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Did it really happen? What will it be like when we are raised from the dead? Lots of good questions. And in chapter 15, Paul waxes for 58 verses answering them. We obviously don't have time to read all that, but we got to read some of it. Turn to chapter 15. Chapter 15. Dear Christian, Amid the mess, remember what is of first importance. Chapter 15, verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures 
that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scripture, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, to one, as to one untimely born. He also appeared to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believe this is the word of the Lord. Beloved, Jesus Christ is alive. In your mess, remember that above all else. Jesus Christ is alive, and that changes everything. Jesus Christ is alive, and he is coming back to clean everything up. But he has come once already to die in the place of sinners, that you might have a perfectly clean record forever with God if you would turn from your sins and trust in him. Christian, I know you feel messy, but your record with God is not what you feel. It's what Jesus did. He cleaned the slate. He cleaned you. It is finished. We heard it earlier in chapter 6, verse 11, what Paul wrote in the past tense. You have been washed, sanctified, justified in the name of Jesus Christ. Church family, we have to remember this in our mess. Remembering this changes how we see our mess. It's easy to think in our mess, we are just a bunch of losers. But with the mind of Christ, we can remember what God says, that the only loser is death. Chapter 15, verse 55, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? (laughs) The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. I love it. Paul began by thanking God, and he ends thanking God, and I give thanks to my God always for you, Iron City Church, because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. And this grace, sisters and brothers, was not given in vain. Let's pray. Father, we confess we're a mess, but we rejoice that we're a beloved mess. Lord, thank you that when you see us, you don't just see us as our problems, but as your children. And so we will not boast of anything, no gifts, no power, no wisdom but we will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. Amen.